0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast contains explicit language.
1: Hello and welcome to So That Happened, the HuffPost Politics podcast about things that happened in politics. I'm Arthur Delaney and I'm joined in studio by my HuffPost Politics colleagues, Igor Bobik. hey. hey. And SV Date. Hello, Arthur. Wow, this week, people got indicted. We've been waiting (laughs) for that for for several months. Uh, Astronomically gigantic news. No way to downplay it. People could be going to jail for things they did related to the Donald Trump campaign for president. Can you explain these indictments, Igor? Lock lock him up. Lock him up? I thought it was lock her up, but now it's maybe lock him up? Yeah, uh, it could be. And yet the the response seems to still... B, lock her up.
2: Oh, that's right. I mean, it, it will always be because we're living through the Hillary Clinton administration right now.
1: I mean, that's literally what Trump said on Twitter. Forget about this indictment against people who worked for me. Lock her up. Mm-hmm. The Hillary Clinton campaign
2: is the one that was bad. It's It's almost like, and I'm not sure if you've seen the show Stranger Things, but it's almost like we're living in the upside down. Uh, so to speak,
1: you know, I have uh, begun watching that show, and it's good and all, but I'm really weirded out by how often people refer to it as <laughs> like a commentary on modern life. You know, it's 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 a sci-fi show, guys. So SV, yes, sir. Please explain the Donald Trump response to the indictment. Actually, first tell us about the indictment. We have Paul Manafort, who we knew from. Extensive reporting had a lot of ties to Russian oligarchs and a lot of money coming in from strange sources. So what
3: did the federal prosecutors say, the special counsel? The the federal prosecutors, following up on an investigation that started a long time ago with Paul Manafort, um, basically indicted him for money laundering and the associated um, crimes that go along with that particularly in this case conspiracy and tax evasion and tax evasion. you laundered your right. money you did not pay your right. well come on if you're going to launder the money are you really going to pay the taxes on it i mean it seems no to way the purpose right. okay <laughs> nonetheless um the the trump administration response is, huh that has nothing to do with us because it happened much of it before he became uh the campaign chairman to the campaign and and really, what is uh, so? What so he had clients and he and, he, and he hit some money and so forth has nothing to do with the actual so, campaign. So this is what that Sarah was Huck-
1: White House spokesperson Sarah Huckabee Sanders said it like this:
4: Today's announcement has nothing to do with the president, has nothing to do with the president's campaign or campaign activity. Uh, the real collusion scandal, as we've said several times before,
5: has everything to do with the Clinton campaign, Fusion GPS, and Russia. There's clear evidence of the Clinton campaign colluding with russian intelligence to spread disinformation and
4: smear the president to influence the election we've been saying from day one there's been no evidence of trump russia collusion and nothing in the indictment today changes that at all
1: it had nothing to do with us with the campaign right except that paul manafort (laughs) was your campaign manager so it had everything to do with your campaign.
3: there was also the issue of this other guy who, uh, as it turns out, not only was indicted, but has actually pled guilty, right? His name is George Papadopoulos. He was a, depending on how you want to look at it, he was a key member of the Trump campaign foreign policy advisory team. There's a photo of him in the one and only meeting that Trump convened with his foreign policy team. Right next to Jeff Sessions. Right next to Jeff Sessions. Or he's the coffee guy. He's someone who barely knew anybody in the campaign. And who is he and
1: what he's, is he doing? He's we 30 no years clothes. old. So, right. so what if you lied? I don't, under, I don't see where is the contradiction there. Because <laughs> you event. had weirdos running every part of your <laughs> policy apparatus for two years. So we're not surprised that the guy has no experience and is young.
3: Bottom line, this guy who has no experience and is young or is a key member of the Campaign uh, was trying to set up meetings with the Russians because the Russians told him, "Hey, we've got all this dirt on Hillary Clinton, all these emails that you may want to see." This happened right around the time that um, the 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 president uh, at the time, the candidate, pretty much locked up the Republican nomination. And remember. In July of that year, he openly invited the Russians to hack Hillary's emails to find those 33,000 missing emails, and you'll be rewarded greatly by our press.
2: Interestingly, according to Papadopoulos, they had those emails months before he said that.
3: Exactly. And he he knew about it. So the Trump campaign knew about these emails or knew that they supposedly existed and didn't go to, for example, I don't know, the FBI and say, hey, we've been approached by Russians about – Stolen stuff, maybe you want to look into it. They just thought that, hey, this is a reasonable thing to explore. Maybe we should look into it. And then you ended up having that meeting in Trump Tower with the president's son. So, a here funny we are. thing
1: happened on Monday, which was Donald Trump, in response to news that Paul Manafort and his uh, deputy had been indicted but hadn't pled guilty, he said, There's no collusion. As this shows, it has no link between Donald Trump and Russia because the indictment didn't mention the word Donald Trump. In Russia, it was all about this money laundering. But then, in like an instant after Trump <laughs> tweeted that, we heard about George Papadopoulos, who had clearly colluded <laughs> right. and pled guilty to lying to the FBI about that
2: collusion. I, my hunch is that that was Mueller's genius stroke. Like he anticipated this response and dropped the third indictment after I think 30 minutes after the, the second. It was, it was very
3: close. Yeah. Right. And, and By the way, this had happened a while ago. This was unsealed at that time. This happened right. in so, July.
1: Right. Now, a lot of people have said what Igor just said, which is that if this is an important signal for where the, the Robert Mueller special counsel investigation is heading. But in tr- you have an intriguing point, which was that they may have delayed it just so mm-hmm. in order to make full – out of Donald Trump <laughs>
2: potentially, and also there's the, the broader signal I think that Mueller is sending is um, interestingly we haven't heard about Michael Flynn yet. Um, and we know that Michael Flynn has been engaged in potentially even more shady stuff than Paul Manafort um, you know giving his given his ties to to uh, other countries around the world and his the lobbying he, he did while <laughs> being in the White House even. So um, I think that's where ultimately Mueller is going to go.
1: Now, there is also the tantalizing possibility that between the time of Papadopoulos' indictment and our learning of it, he was wearing a wire in the White House.
3: Well, I'm not sure if he actually was ever in the White House. We don't have access to visitor logs of the White House, as you may recall. So I don't know. But – he is described as a, a, a what is the phrase? cooperating just cooperating well uh, there was an actual term in the in the uh, in the papers that called him a proactive collaborator yeah, or, something or something like that colluding like that. Yeah. Yeah. with the fbi <laughs> <laughs> yes so um if as far as if he's just the coffee guy then uh, so the he trump seems in, to have the trump administration
1: access. has in a somewhat aggressive pr strategy of simply saying that things that are happening are not happening and that down is up and white <laughs> is black <laughs> There is, though, also the Fox News state media apparatus attacking Mueller and saying Mueller's doing a bad job because he should be focusing on these confusing scandals, quasi-scandals related to who paid for a Trump dossier. Mm-hmm. And this is where they really are, are throwing their, their Mueller attacks into this effort to say it's, uh, it's actually Hillary Clinton who colluded with Russians. So listener, I, I know this that may have sounded confusing and that if you've heard that story before, it's confusing. The fact that it's confusing is the entire point of exactly. it. So don't feel bad if you're confused because it's basically BS. But where the rubber meets the road, Igor, you went to the US Senate and did not find that Republican senators were all that interested in attacking Robert Mueller.
2: No. In fact, they they, they resisted calls for his resignation. Um, they said he should remain in his job and and until he finishes it, basically.
1: Well, wait, wait. who's called for his resignation? The, the White House hasn't said he should resign. No There's speculation that Trump will try to fire him, but who's calling for his resignation? Uh, to, Prom- prominent
2: what? conservative media personalities, who like are Sean Hannity, close type people. The White House. Yeah, Sean Hannity. Um, you know, you had New Gingrich out there uh, who praised Mueller's appointment initially, now saying that you know he's. La- la- Lost his respect for Mueller, and you know he can't believe this guy is a credible independent guy anymore, so you've got this sort of drumbeat laying the groundwork um, for for some kind of call for his
1: and, and Senate Republicans who would be the most influential possible office holders with regard to the question of robert Mueller's independence, they're saying no, nah.
2: no, they're saying no, they don't want to be involved with in that. they have clearly just want to focus on tax reform and they just want to let Mueller do his thing
1: so that's i mean that this is an unhailed guy. I mean, look, guys, I mean you
3: know, if if the Senate Republicans could get their way, they would pass their tax cuts and then Mueller would do his thing with Trump and we'd get President Pence. You know, it'd be that simple. Well, I just want Dumb. to
1: focus on this because last week we had dramatic Senate Republican speeches denouncing the president. This week we don't have those, but it seems like an equally consequential fact that they are not doing the president's bidding on You know, – they're not running interference for him with Robert Mueller. They're going to let him – be as screwed as he's going to be screwed by wherever this investigation winds up.
3: That's right. They're they're not interested in helping Donald Trump against a guy who. It, it's hard to accuse Robert Mueller of being a loose cannon here. I mean, he's been methodical and he's been very smart. As Igor pointed out, he came out with that Papadopoulos um, document within an hour of lay of of those first indictments becoming public, and that really. Put the lid on all the stuff about, oh, this has nothing to do with it. It's a witch hunt they're going after. These things that have nothing to do with Russia. Well, actually, no. Well, it didn't put the lid on, it didn't put the, lid on the White House saying that, but it put the lid on— Unreasonable people looking yeah. at it mm-hmm. and saying that uh, you can't look at the, at the total of what happened that day and say that has nothing to do with Russia. Now,
1: in the mainstream media, George Papadopoulos was an incredibly obscure figure who very few people had heard of. But we did know— about Paul Manafort. I mean, everyone expected him to be in some kind of trouble, either to be indicted or cop a plea and become an informant, which I guess he still could. He could still uh, reduce his potential punishment by cooperating. I think, I think that's
2: Mueller's goal is to flip him. Right. And he's got he's, his team is filled stacked with big name experts who are who, are, who have experience uh, prosecuting crime families and doing this type of thing flipping witnesses in order to take down. An okay, entire so, organization. So. And, and
3: by the way, just because he's pleaded not guilty doesn't mean he's not cooperating and hasn't right. been cooperating. So
1: the point I'm trying to build to is that the alleged crime Manafort had committed was way out in the open. Reporters were pointing out he'd done all this shady lobbying and hadn't registered as a foreign agent in the process of doing it, which is uh, you know a core part of the crime he's alleged to have committed. The other thing that is way out in the open, at this point I think it has elephant room status, is that Donald Trump potentially obstructed justice when he fired the FBI director.
3: Yeah, well, that was apparent, like, seven seconds after it happened. I mean, it was the craziest thing I've seen, especially since the very next day he brought in the Russian ambassador and said, finally got rid of that Mueller guy, you know, because he was making it hard for me to deal with the Russians. Finally got rid of that... Comey. He Jim, Jim Comey. Jim Comey, Comey, the for, FBI yeah. director. So this is... Um, that's. I mean, that's what the, yeah, where this yeah. is going, right? It's an easy one, and if he has an underlying case... Of actual Russian discussions of, of of Russian collusion, then that makes the what you're trying to hide by firing James Comey that much more logical. As well, a, as an action,
1: people who don't like Trump shouldn't get their hopes up. I bet he'll just run for re-election. You know, pretend none <laughs> of this is happening. Say up is down, and see you later. Uh, Igor Babic Svdate, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. So that happened. Thanks. thanks. We'll be right back. And we're back again. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm with SV Date and Igor Bobic, and we have more huge news for week. There's been a little too much news this week. Um, Republicans introduced their tax reform legislation, which they've been working on for months.
3: Tax cut legislation. <laughs> the okay, cuts, well, cuts, cuts uh, so We're going to get to that, fellas.
1: <laughs> so they finally came out with it. It basically fits the contours of the a framework they'd released in September, and now – it's time to see whether they can actually pass it. And according to my conversations with Republican members of Congress, they don't care as much about the actual policy as just getting something passed so that they don't get thrown out of office come November so that Donald Trump doesn't get impeached by a Democratic Congress.
2: I'm skeptical about this. It's it's a conventional wisdom that's been bubbling up is uh, Republican members of Congress and also journalists saying that that House Republicans are somehow screwed. If they don't get this done by 2018.
1: You are completely right. I think it's a, a fake conventional wisdom. I Is it think fake that, news? Yeah, it's fake it's, news. It's fake they could, <laughs> well, it's fake news that they have uh, created and in, in which real reporters are, are fully partaking because it's dramatic and exciting. But there's actually no serious reason to believe that failing to enact a tax reform would really have tax that – have a Jesus S V there's no (laughs) clear indication that it would would necessarily cost them the House of Representatives. They need to lose they need to defend at like twenty four seats, I think. The driving force
2: behind Trump's campaign and and therefore all the all the Republican members who supported him was what? The wall. Building a new wall, right? Yeah, tax cuts were Uh, part of it, but it was like – Terrorism. Yeah, like like lock her up. Trump's base is not demanding corporate tax cuts.
1: Right. Well, there's the side question of whether the donor base of the Republican Party is demanding them and will they stop giving money to candidates if they don't get what they want because this is uh, a a very plutocratic tax agenda. It gets rid of the estate tax, which applies only to people who have estates worth more than – Five and a half million dollars? I have that. Oh, you have that? Uh, Yeah, that's right. Well, what you need to do is get an accountant and set (laughs) up a trust, and then before you die, do a little charity, and then don't worry about it, because that's how easy it is to avoid the estate tax.
2: Apparently, they're repealing it, so I'm I'm so
1: Right. So, they're repealing this, which is just a a giveaway. They're uh, cutting top marginal income tax rates, especially they're cutting business taxes and they say that you know ultimately work and the working man will benefit, but really it is rich people and business executives who benefit immediately. And this is entirely contrary to all that populist stuff we heard during the campaign. But I'm with you; it could flop, and then just nothing would happen. Uh, they'll they'll lose as many seats as they're going to lose, uh, considering how big a potential wave election Democrats are going to have.
3: Well, I think what they're more worried about than losing to a Democrat, most of these folks, is losing to another Republican in the primary. And the primaries start in spring, they go through summer, sometimes even it's the early autumn. And if they don't have one thing, even one serious piece of legislation to show, hey, we've been complaining about taxes, we've been complaining about Obamacare, we've been complaining about all kinds of things for the last 10 years, and we've accomplished zero, absolutely zero, they're in a lot of trouble from their own Republican voters. And think Steve about Bannon. it. Steve <laughs> oh, Right, the Steve Bannon wing of the Republican <laughs> Party or whatever it's going to be. But it's easier to beat a, a candidate who's new, who's knocked off an incumbent, than it is to beat the incumbent from the Democratic point of view there. So... Yeah, I think it's serious that if they don't pass something, which is why I think you'll end up seeing them pass whatever, they'll water it down so that it makes the the Senate deficit hawks happy. And they'll just claim it's the biggest tax cut in history, which is what Trump will claim no matter what anyway. Mm-hmm. And that'll be that. And so this whole, that's why it just offends my sensibilities called reform, because they've already gotten rid of the so-called reforms, many of them that they're going to have. It's just going to be a tax cut. And you know, the Debt, long-term debt, be damned. They don't really care about that.
1: Here's a clip of uh, a Chris Collins, a Republican from New York, explaining wh- you know why they think this is a, a political necessity. Is it politically necessary
0: for this Congress to do tax reform? Hundred percent. And why is that? Because uh, we did. Because our base is expecting us to get this done. We promised we'd get it done. We didn't deliver on health care. Trump is picking apart Obamacare with regulatory changes and executive orders. But Congress did not get it done. We promised fundamental tax reform. And as Nancy Pelosi is saying and Chuck Schumer, they're licking their chops, saying, if we can keep the Republicans from getting this done, boy, are we going to have a great year. Anyway, let's get to
1: the fun stuff. It came out this week that Trump, the President Trump, had an idea for what they should call the legislation. This may have even been the reason they released it on Thursday instead of Wednesday because <laughs> it wasn't that they were fighting over the property tax deduction. It was the name of the bill, and Trump wanted to call it what, Igor? The Cuts, Cuts, Cuts Act of 2017. So, so the Cuts, Cuts, Cuts Act. That's right. Three and, cuts in it. And Republicans on the Hill are like – that's dumb. No. And they fought about it for 24 hours, and what they came up with was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. TICCHA. Oh, for short. Yeah. TICCHA. It's not an acronym or anything. No. It's uh, but I do think it's much better than cuts, cuts, cuts. I do no, know.
5: I'm,
2: I'm kind of of the opinion that Trump, for for all his follies, he is a brand guy, so he knows how to brand things. Well,
1: I mean, that is the, uh, the reason they wanted – they cared what he think, but right. – he had the dumbest idea I've ever heard for the name of a bill in my life. Could you could you forget the name Cuts, Cuts, Cuts Act? No, I – well, you know what? Maybe you have a point. It's unforgettable. That's right. But it's just not – it's it's sort of stupid sounding. It's unforgettable <laughs> in a bad way. That's why it's
2: unforgettable. It's like Little Marco or uh, – uh, little, li- little, little. In a way, little. it
1: illustrates the Trump-Congress uh, dynamic that we've had over this bill for the past several weeks where they're crafting their bill with – uh, lawyers and people who are experts in tax policy, <laughs> and Donald Trump gets asked about random parts of it, and is like, "No, we can't do that." He has no insight into the process whatsoever. But for instance, he said uh, he, he he kiboshed a thing on limiting 401k deductions that they were considering. He did to that to his credit. To his to his credit, I don't no. know. I thought I thought uh, you know there were reasonable arguments you could make in favor of
3: limiting those. Well, the interesting thing about that was uh, another reason why they're not interested in long-term debt, because what they were going to do was going to explode the long-term debt. It, by not having the tax deb- deductibility up front and instead having it later, when the money came out of those accounts, it was going to hurt revenues in the long run. And so, uh, you know, it, it was just a way of shifting, basically. So they,
1: they relentlessly pitched this as a tax cut for the middle class, but when you get into the details, that's not what you see. It's a certain tax cut for people with large estates, which is 0.2% of people, and it's a tax cut for C-corporations from 35% to 20%, and people who have partnerships uh, get a huge tax cut. So it's, it's entirely directed at businesses. And in order to offset the massive revenue loss from all that, which is in the trillions of dollars, the individual income tax side of this bill actually raises right. half a trillion dollars. Raises half a trillion dollars is another way of saying tax hike, <laughs> which is dreaded. A tax hike on the middle class. And so when they unveiled the bill on Thursday. I was there, and and Kevin Brady, the chairman of Ways and Means, which is the committee that writes taxes, was going through provisions in the legislations. And, and a reporter asked him, can you say how many millions of families would ha- actually see a tax increase under this? And his response was, there are hundreds of millions of tax filers in America. Sounds like good- the And the, the poorest ones won't. So... They are – even after having had several weeks of uh, tough news stories about how there's a tax hike on the middle class in this bill, the changes they made behind closed doors do not seem to have allowed them to say definitively that there's no tax hike on the middle class. Interestingly,
3: these numbers in this thing are are similar to what the Tax Policy Center used when they did – an estimate of what this would do and it found that uh, as you point out the overwhelming benefit was to the wealthiest and to the those in the middle class in the bottom or in the or in the middle three quintiles the benefit is minuscule i mean it's in the hundreds of dollars per year Uh, And for many people, it's actual tax increase. So a a
1: third of people who earn between fifty and one hundred fifty thousand dollars would get a tax hike under
3: that framework. TPC analyzed, and And and, two
1: thirds of people in the next level up would get a tax hike.
3: Now, to counter that, what they did was they added like a three hundred dollar tax credit per person, including older people. If you're taking care of your parent or whatever, or you have a college age student, which the tax credit, the child tax credit, doesn't cover. But that only lasts for five years. So, and, in other words, this is a way to give everyone candy right now, mm-hmm. and then for middle class people, take away some of that candy. In you know, mean,
1: meanwhile, all the
2: corporate cuts are permanent. Those
1: would be permanent. The, uh, the expanded child tax credit is the here is what's in it for poor people. Centerpiece of the plan, and Ivanka Trump, it made she made it part of her brand that she would push them to do this. They probably would have done it anyway. They're only using it to try to patch over this gaping tax hike. And it's still not clear that it would succeed. And a funny thing about how they've structured it is that the child tax credit is not actually the current champion of poor people in the tax code. That would be the earned income tax credit. The child tax credit you can still get if your household earns more than $115,000. They want to expand that by by two, a factor of two. They want it to apply to people whose household income is $230,000. Right, but so it's a child tax credit for
2: very needy Americans.
4: A child tax
3: credit for rich people, Arthur. Where that would could become an actual help to poor people is if it was fully refundable. And I haven't looked at the details to know whether that's true. But if not, then you know, uh, for for families making two hundred thousand a year, I mean, an extra six hundred dollars really doesn't mean that much. But if you're only making twenty five thousand a year, and you could have gotten a refundable credit of an additional twelve hundred dollars if you've got two children that would have mattered a lot and if if that's the case then maybe they did something but if not then uh the people in that bottom quintile are getting pretty much nothing Sharish is it gonna pass of course it's gonna pass not in this form but it's gonna pass
1: no it's not igor predict whether it will pass or not uh I, i i think it's gonna pass the house
2: i'm not sure about the senate
1: i really hated it just say up or down vote up or down vote? Pass or no pass?
2: Y- you know, maybe
3: after you go home and tell your children, "Hey, who Fuckers. wants candy? <laughs> who wants candy for dinner tonight? Who's going to say no? Who's going to say no?"
1: You know the uh, Jimmy Kimmel thing where they uh, they pretend they ate or gave away all the kids' candy. Uh, this year, I actually did that. I, I <laughs> mean, did, no, not the joke. I literally gave away all my son's candy. And yeah, uh, he's too young to understand. Did, so. you, did you
2: teach him a, a lesson about socialism like Don- <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. did? No, time? I
1: just hoped he would forget about it, but he woke up saying, I want candy. I said, you can have some later. Uh, Next uh, so, year, for example. Yeah. Uh, all right, Igor uh, and SV, thank you so much for talking about taxes.
3: It's been my pleasure, Arthur. Thanks.
1: All right, we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my favorite colleague, Jen Benderie. And there's something really important happening, but it's flying under the radar because we've had a terrorist attack in New York, a tax bill, Donald Trump's uh, campaign, people getting indicted. So a lot's going on. But this is important because this will affect the way our government operates for the very long foreseeable future. And Jen, what is this thing that I'm describing? What's happening?
4: This huge thing that's happening that no one's really talking about is judges. Judges. Judges getting confirmed. Lifetime judges.
1: So you reported on Monday that a bunch of judges would get confirmed this weekend. It's happened.
4: It is happening. Right now, active verb. Well, it's you know, no,
1: Shannon, we don't know when. In this and, timeless
4: uh, space that we record this. Right.
1: On this, on it the is time, happening. Listeners on the time spectrum, it may have Beyond already this, happened.
4: W- when this week is done, four circuit court nominees will have been confirmed and that's in this a, past week.
1: That's a bunch for that's one That's
4: a lot. Usually, you might see maybe one judge getting confirmed a week in the Senate, if that. Sometimes there's no judges. But we've got four judges and their circuit court nominee judges, which are very, very powerful posts.
1: Posts. That's one step beneath Supreme Court, right? Yes. And these are guys who don't like abortion or gay rights. They don't like rights. abortion
4: or gay rights and they're all um, most of Trump's nominees so far to the courts have been pretty young and pretty conservative and as you said pretty opposed to LGBT rights and abortion rights. And
1: it's decisions that they make that if contested could be sent up to the Supreme Court.
4: Yes. Or they can take up a case that came from a district court. And issue a final ruling on it. Right. And that will stand.
1: So it's interesting that this is able – that Republicans are able to make this happen because usually there's a 60-vote threshold in the Senate. I know people hear a lot about how with reconciliation, they don't need 60 votes. But reconciliation is very special. And that's what they're trying to do with tax reform. But this is thanks to a change that Harry Reid made when Democrats controlled the Senate a few years ago, right?
4: Yes, Harry Reid, when he was the majority leader, he changed the Senate rules so it only takes 51 votes instead of 60 votes yeah. to clear a filibuster on a nominee, and but only for district and circuit court nominees. So that cleared up the the space for Democrats to push through a bunch of uh, district and circuit court nominees that Republicans have been blocking for a really long time.
1: Right, over eight years President Obama had a, an incredible backlog of judicial nominees. Isn't that right? And yes.
4: The, the, Republicans used just about every possible rule they could think of to either delay or block Obama's judges. And they did this very strategically because they were hoping that a Republican would win the White House after him. And then they could quickly fill up all the seats that were empty under Obama. And it worked.
1: Is it is – it- possible to analyze how the vacancies that accumulated during that time affected judicial outcomes? Or is that is this something that plays out over a a longer term? It
4: is definitely possible to measure. It's called a a judicial emergency when a certain court gets too many cases for that court to be able to handle per judge. So there's an official designation known as a judicial emergency that a court falls into. And the number of judicial emergencies around the country has spiked under Trump. Well, toward the end of Obama's term and now way up uh, under Trump.
1: So so the effect of what Mitch McConnell did when he was the minority leader is that Democrats basically missed an opportunity to have more liberal judges hear those cases that were being uh, not heard during judicial emergencies.
4: What what Obama just lost out on is the ability to fill court seats, period. Some of the judges that he nominated weren't necessarily liberal. Some of them were very centrist. He even nominated a couple of Republicans here and there. But what he missed out on was the ability to shape the overall federal bench with the kinds of judges that reflected his. Yeah, yeah.
1: nominating Republicans is so Obama because he's like, "I'll meet you halfway," even though no one's going to meet you halfway. Well,
4: and it's still, and it's still, you know, when you become president, you have the right to nominate judges. That's what what comes with winning. You can
1: pick whoever you want. You don't have to pick a Republican to be nice.
4: Right, but I think I guess I would say that. Nominating judges is not always just partisan. Okay. It's it's judges that come from states where both of the state Senate, the senators from that state agree on supporting that judge. So, for example, in Texas, there's two Senate Republicans right. who have a hand in, you know, nominating judges. They worked with the White House, not so great, but to at least get a couple of nominees through um, that they could all agree on. but even
1: those Republicans were rebuffed in when when their no- nominee came came up for review by the Senate floor under the uh, Harry Reid leadership because of what McConnell was doing.
4: Uh, well, sometimes McConnell would ease up when uh-huh. a Republican, when a when a judicial nominee from a state with two Senate Republicans came up. Okay, so he might let some of those judges through. Uh, we're
1: waiting into too much nuance. It is here. very,
4: it's a messy world. Well, here's, okay. Well,
1: well, when I remember when uh, Harry Reid did this, it was called nuclear
4: going nuclear. Yeah, yeah.
1: and and one thing everyone said was like, well, you know, this is going to really suck for you if you wind up in the minority again, which it was clear that they would, just based on the patterns of which senators were due for reelection in the coming years. So what did democrats say now that this is happening that Mitch you know their guys didn't get through and now Mitch McConnell is basically rushing through more judicial nominees than had even been attempted previously
4: Well it's just it's all fairly predictable when you're in the minority you bash the majority for doing you know doing things wrong and putting up bad people and when you're in the majority you accuse the minority of delaying things and causing obstruction and not letting the process work its will. I mean, you hear the same talking points from both parties.
1: So you don't see them saying, I regret doing this. They're basically, you just hear them eating a shit sandwich.
4: They take turns accusing each other of the same thing, depending on who's in the majority of the minority. I think I would say one difference, though, is that Republicans were extremely effective at preventing Obama from filling court seats. They pulled out every stop in the book to block judicial nominees every possible step of the way. There's different ways you can delay a nominee's are, vote. Are or Democrats
1: block. not doing that? They're
4: not as – I haven't seen them being as aggressive and as thorough in in trying to gum up judicial nominees. They're I, doing some things. But hasn't, uh, hasn't
1: Mitch McConnell been sort of imperious about this? Didn't he say he would not respect the so-called blue slips that so, judicial committee members can use to, to, to block a judge they don't like?
4: So Mitch McConnell is in between a rock and a hard place. Not to use a really overused cliche, but I'm going to use it. It's fine. So, on the one hand, uh, he really does want to believe it or not keep Senate traditions in place, even though people think he's like the evil genius and doesn't yeah, people care think about he's
1: anything. Uh, so diabolical. Yes,
4: but he, there is a part of him that is old school and institutionalist. Part of him and doesn't want to just rip out all the rules of the Senate in order to help Trump do whatever he wants. So there's that. But on the other side, he's got outside conservative groups who are really, really annoyed with him for not doing more on judges and getting more confirmed and hurrying it up.
1: And- oh, and, and more on legislation. like they have- On
4: legislation, but, but judges are the number one priority for conservative groups because these are lifetime appointments. Yeah. This is like when Trump is gone – these are the people who are still there issuing you know, rulings the, all over the country. This was
1: Trump's Trump card for religious voters who you know, don't like a uh, lecherous guy like Trump. He said, I'll get you the judges. And he was referring specifically to Supreme Court judges, but it applies also to oh, these. Conservative
4: police. groups love judges. This is their number one priority. There's, I would say there's not an equivalent in the Democratic Party of progressive groups that are just as aggressive about confirming judges. This is like their thing. So... Mitch McConnell has, on the one hand, he wants to keep kind of Senate traditions more or less in place, but he's got conservatives yelling at him and threatening to run ads against him, saying he sucks if he doesn't hurry it up. So now, this week, we're seeing all these judges coming up, and that's because he's trying to keep them happy, those groups, but he's not willing to get rid of certain rules like the blue slip rule, which he mentioned. He's, which not, is, getting no, he's not getting rid of oh. blue No, he's not getting rid of it, even though the, he gave an interview to a conservative news outlet that reported that he said it, the blue slip rule was done. It was in fact overwritten, and that blue slip rule is still there. That that was not accurate. It's still there, the but conservative that, that's what news conservatives made want. A mistake. They they wrote. I suspect what they wanted to in into the story to suggest that. Okay. Because I spoke to McConnell's office myself, and they were like, "We're not getting rid of it. We don't like it, but we're not getting rid of it at least for now." So that's a very delicate point there, because if they got rid of this blue slip rule, which sounds so boring and wonky right now, and I don't know if people listening even know what that is. But it's basically a blue piece of paper that a senator gives to the Judiciary Committee to say, I'm cool with you moving forward with a nominee from my home state. If you don't turn in the blue slip, then that nominee doesn't go anywhere. So that gives Democrats the ability to prevent judicial nominees from moving forward. They they still have that,
1: but they're not doing it.
4: So they're using their blue slips. Some of them have, have refused to turn in a blue slip to hold up a nominee, and those nominees have not moved
1: But nevertheless, four guys in one week, whereas you had one guy per week in the previous administration.
4: So while some nominees in the committee may not be getting hearings because Democrats aren't giving their blue slips in, there are lots of other nominees moving around. And so just this week, some of those nominees who have made it to the Senate floor all got lined up for votes this week.
1: On the topic of Mitch McConnell, he did blow up the 60-vote requirement for – Supreme Court judge that had been left in place by Harry Reid. and my and my yes, so he he did that in order to get Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, and that was a big deal
4: it was a huge deal
1: Democrats could could use that if they retake the Senate
4: absolutely, so and they probably then they will the
1: Senate's changing in big ways It is ways. changing. So there was one guy – you had another story this week who uh, was up for a hearing before the Judiciary Committee, which is the committee that looks at judges before they're sent to the House floor. These committee members have to say, "Okay, go ahead. And apparently his hearing was a complete nightmare debacle disaster.
4: (laughs) It was really embarrassing. This guy, his name is Stephen Graz. Grass? Graz? Uh
3: Uh-huh.
4: He got a not qualified rating by the American Bar Association, which like never happens. It's so rare. And out of Trump's 42 judicial nominees so far this year, two have gotten that rating, which is already a lot. But this is one of those two. And it basically means the official legal group of the country reviewed you, looked, talked to people you know and work with, looked at your credentials, and decided that you are not fit to be a judge. That is embarrassing. You have to suck. You must want- really suck. And you have. And then two days after they, they issued their report saying this guy sucks, he had to sit in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and have his confirmation hearing where they asked him all about the details of why well, he, he sucks. he
1: could have withdrawn himself. But he, he could he have. Went, yeah. He
4: could have. But a lot of these guys and women, people who become nominated, they are – this is the crown jewel. They want to be a freaking judge.
0: Let's hear the clip. Mr. Graz, I assume you're keenly aware that you are the first circuit court nominee since 2006 – to receive a unanimous, not qualified rating from the ABA and that the last nominee who had such a rating was withdrawn?
5: That is my understanding, Senator.
0: Do you think that this is a matter as to which the committee should have no concern?
5: Uh, Senator, I uh, have great respect for uh, the amount of time and effort uh, that the American Bar Association put into the process. Uh, I do respectfully disagree with the result.
0: Uh, Do you ascribe I, it to partisanship on the part of the investigating lawyers?
5: Senator, as a uh, nominee, I think it's important uh, for me to respect that process. Uh, I, I would not uh, try to advise uh, this committee on the amount of weight that it would give to that. I think that's totally within the, the discretion of the committee uh, to give whatever weight you want to uh, to their evaluation.
0: It was a 14 to 0 vote, was it not, of the committee of the bar?
5: Uh, Senator, I'm, I'm not uh, keenly aware of that. I believe there was one abstention, but uh, that which
0: would that's accurate. why it's 14 because yeah. there are 15 of them.
5: Mm-hmm. I, I believe that's correct. Yeah.
1: Uh, wow. So you, uh, this brings to mind the the German word for external shame, fremdschamen. <laughs> that's how I felt about. It's pretty embarrassing. I, mean, I don't consider that guy my friend or anything. And but not
4: only was this guy, did he get a bad rating based on? The, the bar Association basically said this guy's too much of an advocate we think he's not able to separate um, being objective from his own personal views on hot button issues like abortion but aside from that they basically said this guy's a dick and if you look at the Ridiculous details colleagues. of this of the aba the bar Association's eight page statement on this guy, they talked to people that know him and said he's he's gratuitously rude, he's <laughs> awful, people are scared of him, people were afraid to say things to the Bar Association about him because they were afraid it would get back to him and he would, I don't know, so what So the commi- what
1: did the committee say? This was Democrats who were bringing up his lack of qualification. What did the overall committee do?
4: Uh, pretty predictably, the Republicans on the committee said, oh, the, the Bar Association is partisan. This is a partisan political attack, which... In this climate, shouldn't be too surprising of a a response, just saying everything is partisan, except that the Bar Association has rated 40 of Trump's 42 judges as qualified or very qualified. So it's not as if the Bar Association is just going after Trump's judges. So
1: is Graz getting through or what?
4: Well, his hearing just happened. So uh, he could get through. I don't know. Usually, let me just put it this way. The last person this happened to which, again, hardly ever happens. It's been 11 years since another person was deemed not qualified who was a circuit court nominee. 11 years. The last time that happened, that guy withdrew his name.
1: Wow. Donald Trump, only the best people. That's right. Uh, Jen Bettery thank you so much for patiently explaining what's happening with judicial nominees in you the Senate. You are
4: welcome. Judicial. Judicial. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
1: So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this week we were joined by HuffPost reporters SV Date, Igor Babic, and Jennifer Bendery. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to Happened at huffpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening.